Welcome, welcome everyone to another episode of Mentors on the Mic. I'm here with Kate Bone for our lovely Atomic Habit series that we've been doing. How are you today, Kate? I'm so good. I am learning so much through this process. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, thank you. I'm so excited to revisit this. I mean, I just read it in December, so a lot of things are really like you know, in the front of my mind. And then there's stuff that you've even mentioned today before we got on this where I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that tool. Like, there's just so many. And, you know, there's only so many we can, like, keep in our brains or implement. So this is nice to revisit and try the things that I didn't try back in December. So... Very exciting stuff. Uh, If you haven't yet, everyone, um, please check out our other episodes. No need to pause this and go play that one. We have two episodes right before this. It's a part one, part two. Um, Feel free to go back after reading, after listening. Don't read anything. After listening to this episode, just go back and listen to part one and part two for even more tips and tricks and uh, ways to strengthen your habits or break the ones you don't like anymore because we're going to be touching on it today too but Kate welcome thank you so much for doing this this has been the most amazing thing to partner with so I appreciate you as this co-host in this series oh of course I was just saying on Sunday right before we had our integration call I was talking to Michelle about the habit loop which we are going to get into today, which is one of sort of the foundations of understanding how our habits are formed. And there is a connection between the habit loop and the four laws of habit formation that I just that totally went over my head the first time I read this book. And it wasn't until you pointed this out to me that I was like, oh, I think I understand now. So basically, Michelle, can you explain to them what the habit loop is? Absolutely. So the habit loop, you might have heard it from another thing too. I read it actually the first time in The Power of Habit, which is another fantastic book that James Clear even references. But the habit loop or the feedback loop are essentially four things that are involved in any habit, right? We have a cue, something that cues us, that makes us want to do something, right? So for instance, the clinking of the slot machines that like everyone hears If you're a gambler, that will make you crave. That's the second step of a habit. That will make you crave something. So the cue would be the sound and the craving would be, I need to gamble, right? The third one is response, the I need to gamble part. That's the response to the craving. And the reward is doing something to maybe satisfy that craving. Now, that cue of slot machines does nothing for me, right? That has that produces no craving for me. But if you're a gambler and you are used to casinos, that craving is huge. So all four parts of this feedback loop or this habit loop are important and are required stuff for creating a habit for someone. And if one of them doesn't really work, right, if you're not getting a reward, if there is no cue, if the craving isn't doing it for you, then it's not a habit forming for you. It's not going to form any sort of habit. So let's give an example. A cue would be your phone buzzes and the craving would be like, I want to see that. I want to see that text. I want to see it. And the response is you read the text and the reward is after reading it, there's like a part of you that like is satisfied, right? And the issue, the the habit that's formed is that now every time that phone buzzes, you expect or want that reward that comes with it. So that's why we're all attached to our phones, guys. Another cue would be you wake up, right? And the craving is, oh, I want to feel alert, right? And so the response would be like, okay, I'm going to drink coffee or caffeinated tea or something like that. And the reward is, oh, I feel alert. 
So then you crave it. Then it becomes a habit where every time you wake up, you need coffee or you need some sort of caffeinated beverage in order to feel alert. So these are the way habits form. They're crucial in trying to either create habits or build habits. And actually, those four parts that we were talking about, cue, craving, response, reward, those four parts in creating a habit are actually connected with the laws that we're talking about. Sound effect. Yeah, sound effect. I wish. I wish it was like a boom. My brain exploded. <laughs> yeah, well, so it's interesting. We didn't really go over this. We went over this in our integration call, but we didn't go over this in the last couple episodes. So if you're new here, this is the perfect one. So the first law last week, just as a very, very quick review, was make it obvious. And this corresponds with that first part of the habit loop, the cue, right? So making it habit Making making it habit, guys. Making, making it, it habit. habit. <laughs> making it obvious is all about changing the awareness that we have around us, whether it comes to our environment or expanding our awareness with like our our habits in general. All of that is corresponded with that cue. If we make that cue obvious, if we change that first part, then we can create new habits or we can learn how to break old ones. So that leads us to our second law, which is what we're focusing on today. Kate, what is our second law today? The second law is to make it attractive. And this is going to correspond to the craving part of the habit. So how do we figure out a way to crave the habits that we want to implement in our life. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So the question is, how do you make a habit irresistible? I'm already on board with this. We're going to talk about dopamine. Let's go. In the book, James Clear says that scientists can track the precise moment a craving occurs by measuring a neurotransmitter called dopamine. This is the feel-good chemical in the brain where you like get something you want and you're like, <sighs> surprise. We also release dopamine when we are expecting to get what we want, which I found really interesting. Um, he makes it clear that dopamine isn't the only chemical that influences your habits, but he's singling it out, this dopamine circuit, because it helps us to understand how desire, craving, and motivation are actually so important for our survival on a biological level. So they did this study on rats. You guys are not going to oh believe God. this. This is like so dramatic. Are you ready for this? <laughs> So in 1954, they did this study where they blocked the release of dopamine on these rats in a lab so they couldn't experience any form of craving or desire. Within a few days, the rats lost all will to live. They would not eat. They would not have sex. They didn't crave anything. And within a few days, the rats died of thirst. Is that crazy? I like cannot believe that. So like dopamine is so important for our survival. It makes us want things to go outside of our body and get them. It contributes to our will to live. It's wild. And so they also reinvented this study and they made it so that the rats would taste sugar, but they wouldn't crave it. So they gave them little droplets of sugar, but the rats still didn't care. So they still didn't go for it. And so they also died. But then when they reversed the process and flooded the systems of these animals with dopamine, the animals performed habits at a breakneck speed. He discusses this study where he gave these mice dopamine hits if they put their nose in a little box. And you're not going to believe this, but the mice were putting their nose in the box 800 times an hour. It's crazy. Michelle, does this sound like me 
repetitively checking my Instagram for likes and messages that are just giving me little dopamine hits. Honestly, it makes me feel better about checking Instagram as often as I do because literally I'll just be bored and I'll be like, oh, uh, I checked it again. And it's it's so interesting. I never really understood. I knew that dopamine felt good. I knew that I liked looking at my phone and seeing that I got a new like or a new comment or something, but I didn't know how deeply it was linked to our biology and our experience of survival and how we need dopamine to like strive for things to literally stay alive. So what do we do with this information though? Like what do we do about knowing this and having this knowledge? Well, I think, first of all, we just need to realize that this is our biological programming. And so what we can do with this is do temptation bundling. And so he gives this amazing example um, how Shonda Rhimes, this TGIT moment. Thank God it's Thursday for those of you who are not obsessed with her shows as I am. (sighs) She's the best. Shout out to Shonda Rhimes for just being the one. Um, so they famously advertised her three hit TV shows, Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, and How to Get Away with Murder, airing on Thursday nights, and the network advertised these shows together and made a more sensory experience out of watching these TV shows by encouraging viewers to eat popcorn and drink red wine, and they specifically marketed to couples and singles who want to have fun and want to indulge while staying in during the work week on a Thursday night, but they started to associate relaxing and unwinding with watching the next episode on Shondaland. They also actually did a very cool thing, and this may or may not be relevant, but um, but like they created a whole Twitter thing out of this. This was like a hashtag. This is like TGIT was like a huge thing. And so the stars of the show would tweet, would live tweet the shows, would live tweet the episodes of Grey's Scandal and How to Get I Away with Murder. I forgot about that. So oh people would be God. like, oh, I'm more tempted to watch it live, which is amazing for network television shows, right, to get the live Right at those ratings, baby. And then eat popcorn, drink red wine, do it with your friends, do it with your, you know, your significant other. And it was like a whole thing that they encouraged. But really, these were all bundling just temptations, right? We got the wine, (laughs) we got the popcorn, we got the TV, we got the friends. Like there was a reason to get together. And it became a weekly thing for people to do. You guys, we are building on what we are learning. These are all building blocks. So do you guys remember habit stacking? where you take a habit that you're already doing and then you put right after that, okay, I'm going to do the new habit. So right after I have my coffee, I'm going to sit down and do my morning pages. This is the next level. Then you do, after you do the habit that you need to do, do the habit that you want to do. Mm. So it becomes a structure of like after current habit, I will do the habit I need to do. After the habit I need to do, I will do the habit I want to do. It's all about this positive reinforcement. I love what he says. I can't remember if it's this chapter or if it's the last chapter, but he talks about how like in the end, the reward really needs to be doing the habit itself. But in the meantime, like we can incentivize ourselves. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in the last episode. So make sure you're there for part five, um, because we're going to talk about how that dynamic works. But we have one last thing we want to talk about here. And that is how much community matters. 
So another way that we can ingrain our habits a little bit deeper is by joining a culture or community where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. This really makes me think of Dr. Brene Brown's work, how we are social, emotional creatures, and one of our deepest desires is to belong. And James Clear says that being connected to a group increases our safety, our mating opportunities, and access to resources. This is biological. That's why it hurts so bad when the mean girls in middle school all wore white pants on Wednesday and didn't include you. I don't know, did that happen to anybody else or just me? <laughs> I literally told, this is so silly, I told my younger self, don't worry, it gets better. Junior high is the worst. <laughs> Wait, junior high is the worst, it's and the I'm worst really sorry. Girls. It's the worst for girls. I think boys, maybe it's it's a different time. For girls, man, junior high, we're just, ugh. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Community. <laughs> community is important, and it helps to reinforce this shared identity, reinforces the personal identity that we're trying to create. And we talked a lot about this in part one, creating that personal identity of like, what kind of person do you want to be? And so it turns out the habits that we do are habits that have been modeled for us. And they're, they've been modeled for us by three different groups. He breaks this down, down into the close, the many, and the powerful. So let's start with the close, the closest people to you. Who are the five closest people to you? Do you imitate their behavior? He says in the book that if you have a partner that loses weight, you're one third more likely to lose weight too. Another study found that the higher your best friend's IQ is at age 11, the higher your IQ would be at age 15. This is why parents get so freaked out when their kid starts like running with the wrong crowd. <laughs> I, I was thinking that's what parents are like, you're a reflection of who you're hanging out with. And so like, if you're listening to this, like take a sweet little look, take a gentle, sweet look at the people that are closest to you and look at what behavior is normal for them. And just know that that's actually really powerful and you can get sucked into that dynamic because they're close to you. So let's go on to the many this blew my mind. So obviously there's power in the masses, right? He talks about this biological safety that comes from being part of the group. And once we have like intimate connections with like one person, then we want like more people around that. And what's crazy about this is that it can go one of two ways. The most fascinating thing that he shared in this portion is that they did this study on monkeys who have a superior way of digging for grubs. And if they join a group that has an, a less effective way of digging for grubs, the monkey will do the less effective method in an effort to belong to the new group. Right. So instead of teaching the new group the more superior way, they just go, no, I'm just going to do what they're doing. And he gives another example of where like, actors came into a room and they were asked a question and then certain amount of people would like vote for the wrong answer and the more and more people that were there voted for the wrong answer the more likely it would be for people to second guess themselves yeah there were a lot of studies i remember i took a social psychology class in college and they there's so many examples of group think where like you know there'd be all these actors and you're you're the only one that's the non-actor right you don't know what's going on and if everyone says oh they're like there are five lines on this page and you know that there's only three, you'll still vote for it to be three. It's so horrible. Because there's so many people there that you're you're thinking there's something I'm missing and you're just yeah. going with the group, even though you know that there's only th like 
five line, whatever. It's a cool thing. It's very weird. It's really powerful. So be mindful of that when you're in a mass group, like just understand that there might be some safety along with that. Like that's very real, but also keep this sort of internal awareness of like what you know and believe is right. And I feel like that can be developed through meditation and through journaling and like establishing a really intimate connection with like your inner voice and your inner knowing um, so that you have the integrity to stand up for something when maybe it is going against the grain. But just know that that takes a lot of energy. So if you're in a group of people that are like all going one way, it's going to take a lot of energy to go the other way. The final piece here is the powerful and how we're influenced by them. I find this so interesting that as soon as we fit in and we feel that we're part of a group, we look for ways to stand out. And he says that we imitate powerful and successful people so that we can have more access to resources and so that we can look more attractive to other people. And it just made me think of your podcast, Michelle, because like this is Mentors on the Mic and you interview really amazing people. And you get to hear like not only their journey, but like what they did to get there and how they thought about things and what their habits have been. How has this impacted you as a person by listening to all these incredible mentors and people who've achieved amazing things? Like how has that impacted you? There are so many. I mean, I love every single person I've interviewed like with such a passion that like I think about it a lot. But like a lot of the writers on the podcast will give really great advice about like just sit there and just write and just put it, dump it on the paper and do not judge yourself for it. Just get it done more than get it done well. And that's what editing is for. So she's like, mm. they're all like, just put it down on paper. Do not judge yourself. And so like, I've started to implement that habit as well. Like, don't second guess how bad something is. They're like, what did one person call it? The vomit draft? Oh my God, my friend calls it that too. Yeah, they're like, just get the shitty one down so that you can like go back to it afterwards and be like, all right, now it's time to edit as opposed to not having anything down in the first place because you're just self-editing as you go. Oh my God, we're going to talk about this a lot more in part five, you guys. So if that's something you do, like judging your work or being like, trying to edit while you're trying to create, make sure you turn it, tune into part five because we're really going to dive into that. So I was just going to say to wrap that up about the community piece, like join a culture where your desired behavior is the normal behavior and join a group that you already have something in common with. He gives this example that I think is so sweet about this trainer in New York who has a company called Nerd Fitness. Like starting a fitness routine can be challenging and intimidating. And so there's this group of people that already have something in common. They're engineers, they're bookworms, they're into comics, and they're trying to get fit together. And so I see a lot of this at Wonderwell as far as like the power of community. And it's what made me want to start a creative community is because I wanted to be surrounded by creatives who were like going against the grain in their own way to create things that they really cared about, who were pushing the form forward and making art in a way that felt really good to them and sustainable for them. And I found that it looked different on so many people, but I wanted to have that sense of accountability. And I started noticing that as I was like gathering more and more people who were interested in being in creative community, like that was sort of the thing that we all desired was how do we create our work? And 
establish a creative flow and create sustainable creative production schedules for ourselves, that it's actually doable and not something that we collapse under. Like that's all of our common desire. And then what I realized, like the thing that we all have in common is that we love being in community. These are folks who are really interested in embodiment work, yoga, meditation, personal self-development work. And so it's just, just a really great blend of artists who are passionate about pushing their work forward, but they're wanting to be in community and have friends and enjoy the ride and not just like step over people to get to the top. (laughs) And it's just been so nice to see so many people feel supported to take risks because they're supported by a larger group. So folks are feeling more empowered to go out and like take that leap because they know they can come to our well call on Sunday and be like, okay, I pitched myself for this and this is what happened. Or, oh, I sent out this tape and now I have a self-tape hangover and we can all take care of each other in the rigors of the creative process. I love that. I mean, it's so impactful and like there's something about coming together with people who want to do something similar to you. And like, it gives you, like you said, motivation to get that desired behavior you want. So if you're wanting to feel more motivated to like create and to take action on things, then being around people like that who are also doing the same will lift you in your desired behavior. Another example that I use is um, I have my own community, but like, I'm not going to go into that. I will go into, do you, have you ever heard of the cave? No. So the cave is something that I've personally just subscribed, resubscribed to again. It's like a community that essentially gets together on these virtual calls and they all fulfill a specific task. So you come into this call with a task that you want to complete and you're not allowed to have multiple tasks. You know, sometimes I do, but we'll, we'll take that aside. But you're supposed to technically come in with one task you're going to do. You put your phone somewhere where you can't see it. You're not allowed to try to do anything else. It's a whole, I mean, you, you obviously, they, they trust that you're going to, you know, fulfill your own journey. You're not going to like get reprimanded or anything. But the idea being that they support you and everyone else, it's almost like a co-working virtual space. But what they do, which is really nice, is they have routines and like rituals in place for before and after to cap the call. So in the beginning, <gasps> yeah, the beginning they have like a like a thunderclap. So everyone claps together. And once that thunderclap is heard, then you start your task. Um, and then at the end, you do a high five to the camera so that everyone's like ending out that cave. Um, another thing that they do, which is great, is like... They'll have a breakout room in the beginning and they're using these habits. It's fantastic. So they'll say, you, you know, it's an optional breakout room. You go to with one or two people and you tell them your task. You say for this, t- for this cave, I'm going to, um, put together this, uh, edit this episode pod for my podcast. And they're like, great. And they know that just saying it aloud increases your chances that you're going to get that task done. So if you guys are interested, let me know. But there's so much power in community so highly recommend seeking out communities that participate in this desired behavior that you're looking for i love that y'all couple quick things for the end i want to tell you just a couple little things you can do to reframe your brain reprogram your brain to enjoy hard habits. I want you to think about a mindset shift for this week. So if there's something that you're dreading doing, I want you to say, I don't have to do this. I get to do this. Here's another example of ways we can reframe things that we want to implement, a financial example. Saving money is often associated with sacrifice. So can you reframe it 
and reframe saving and budgeting to associate it with freedom. Saving this month increases your spending power next month. The final thing that he offers, which I kind of love, is a motivational ritual. So do something pleasurable and attractive before going into a difficult habit. When I was going into songwriting sessions and I was really intimidated and I would hear all this inner critic stuff about like, oh, I don't know if I have anything good to write about or what am I even going to say or am I even good at this, whatever. I had to stop myself from canceling the session, which is what I wanted to do and just like go in a hole and hide. But I would make myself a really nice, um, I call it a rosy cacao latte with rose tea and cacao, which is a vasodilator, which gets your blood moving and gets your creativity activated, frothed almond milk and some honey. And then that would kind of bring me into the ritual of songwriting. It sort of was the trigger that would help settle my system, give me something soothing to go and do the hard thing. And then 30 minutes into my session, we'd be popping and coming up with great ideas and melodies. So um, highly recommend creating a little motivational ritual. And you can also create a totally unique motivational ritual. So take something that you already love to do. For example, if you love petting your dog, do a very short motivational ritual of like, take three deep breaths and smile and then pet your dog. This is so random and out of left field, but you can literally establish this like, oh, every time I take three deep breaths and smile, I get to do something pleasurable that I want to do. Then you can take those three deep breaths and the smile and take it into a more challenging situation. So if you're not able to like make a gorgeous rosy cacao latte, you could like take three breaths and smile. Isn't that crazy? We can teach ourselves that like there's a ritual before something that will calm us down. And we do that by putting it in front of something we already enjoy. And then that even even do it's the idea that like even smiling will make you feel a little bit better like just the act of physically smiling so it's the same it's the same logic so if you do some sort of ritual whether it's smiling or breathing before you pet your dog or do something that you love you can apply that for other things to gear you up for hard things it's pretty cool i love it okay so we want to leave you with a question you guys During our integration session last week, basically what we realized is that the brain is designed to scan for problems and more than figuring out what kind of habit we want to implement, the first thing we really become aware of like the habits that we need to break. So I want you to think about how you could reverse psychology, this make it attractive to make the habits that you want to break unattractive. Could you make a list of things that are unattractive about the habit that you're trying to break, how it might be unattractive to the people close to you, how it might be unattractive to the many around you, how it might be unattractive to other powerful people and see how that goes. And just as a reminder, integration call for this is this Sunday, the 22nd. So in a couple days or however, whenever you're listening to this. So if this is in your future, if this Sunday, the 22nd is in your future, please stop by the show in the show notes. You'll have a link to join our call. It'll be just a great way to be in community um, and hold each other accountable and like put some of these up in our, you know, for, you know, in action. We don't have to do all of them, but perhaps we could think about one or two of them that would benefit us. And let's do it together, right, Kate? Sounds so fun. I can't wait. Me too. Well, thanks guys so much. We really appreciate you and we'll see you next week. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you haven't yet, do me a favor. Drop a five-star review. 
Follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. And find me on Instagram. I'm at, at Michelle Simone Miller and at Mentors on the Mic. Share this in your stories. Let me know what you think. Share it with a friend. And I'll see you next time.